0: here. Once in a while, Pastor Matt Schultz or myself give a sermon that we're really proud of. And so we decided to create a new uh, program called What Divines Us Shorts, where maybe once a month, Pastor Matt or myself will share a sermon that we really like. So here we go. What Divines Us Shorts. There's an interesting Bible passage that comes from Leviticus 14, and it goes like this. God says, when you enter the land of Canaan that I give you as possession, and I inflict an intrusive plague upon a house in the land you possess, the owner of the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, something like a plague has appeared upon my home. I'm going to need some time to unpack this passage. First off, I'd like to point out that the Israelites are currently wandering the desert and no one owns a permanent home. The 40 years of wandering has not happened yet, so they are receiving instructions that are not even actionable for another 40-plus years. So there's that. Secondly, the word for plague here in Hebrew is tzara'at. This is the same word used for contagious skin rash. Tzara'at is often a term confused for Hansen's disease, or, as I like to call it, Hollywood leprosy. Tzara'at was contagious but could have been anything from a benign skin rash to a deadly bacteria eating away at one's skin and nervous system. And you may have noticed that history took the most dramatic interpretation of sarat as seen in many Hollywood films as leprosy. Anyways, apparently homes get it too. The prevailing thought is that sarat of a home is not a flesh-eating bacteria, but mold, which is still pretty dangerous. Which leads to my third point. Adonai, which is a Jewish name for God, is admitting that this plague is created by God. And to me, this is a big admission. In fact, nowhere else in Leviticus does Adonai admit that Zara'at comes from God, only when it comes to homes. This means that the home stays in quarantine for 7 to 14 days, in which no one can enter. And that the Zara'at does not go away, the house is destroyed stone by stone. Rashi, an 11th century Jewish Bible commentator, who is arguably Judaism's most famous commentator, has such a hilariously bizarre reason for this. He wrote, Because the Amorites concealed treasures of gold in the walls of their houses during the whole 40 years, the Israelites were in the wilderness, in order that the Israelites might not possess the gold when they conquered the Amorites' land. And in consequence of the plague, Israelites would pull down the house and discover the gold." Essentially, Rashi's trying to spin it as a positive thing. that Israelites are apparently living in old Amorite houses. Whenever an Amorite home contracts Zara'at, it means one could find gold. And, and since this is a godly admitted problem, God wants the recent homeowner to find the gold. Now, I first took this as a ridiculous and hilarious interpretation. However, when I started to read other ancient Jewish commentators' take on this passage... I began to truly understand Rashi's position. The fact that God admits to plaguing homes is deeply troubling for our rabbinic ancestors. Because if God does something, ancient theology dictates that it was for a reason. Thus, biblical theology and post-biblical theology, pretty much up to modernity, suggests that a person deserves the punishment received by God. A person deserves a bad thing happening to them. And this leads us into an unfortunate rabbit hole. Because if you are living in a Canaan, just trying to get through your day as best as you can, and you find mold in your home, then your life gets so much harder for two different reasons. The first is that your house is quarantined, and you can't enter it from 7 to 14 days. And the second, and probably harder, is the stigma that somehow you deserved this punishment And our scholarly ancestors were nothing, if not creative, about the crime such a person could have committed. In fact, here's a list. Perhaps this mold means that the homeowner seized this home violently. Maybe the homeowner bore false witness while in the house. Or the homeowner was too stingy and essentially not willing to share household items. Perhaps they're not willing to donate their money to charity. Maybe the homeowner is being made an example for the rest of the community. These were all suggestions presented by our ancient Jewish scholars for why homeowners' houses were moldy. And I can't imagine the untold damage these discussions made for people who just want to live in a home where we're free and happen to notice some mold on their walls. So back to Rashi. What was a ridiculous and flippant position hits home in the context of other scholars' discussion. Rashi offered an explanation that did not stigmatize nor demonize a person with a moldy house. Furthermore, the weight of his authority, as Judaism's number one Bible commentator, provides a home for an explanation that did not harm others. Now, all people who are blamed for having moldy homes could refer to Rashi, a household name, in their defense. And this is why I love Judaism. What on the surface looks to be a funny and whimsical comment turned out to be a brave, valuable, and helpful position for Jews. One could argue that Rashi's silly comment is a critique on the previous scholar's outlandish claims of why God admits to plaguing homes. That Rashi's comment is a proportioned response to the insane logic of victim blaming. There's a lesson for us in the here and now. Because currently in our country, trans people and members of the LGBTQ community are being treated as if they have sara'at, as if God gave them sara'at and that it is their fault. It is, of course, a classic and particularly cruel case of victim blaming. And Judaism teaches us that all people are created betzelim Elohim in the image of God. Thus, each person is a unique expression of God. And Rashi teaches us that we can be creative, even whimsical, in our protest. And one of my favorite examples of creative protesting is the birds are not real movement. A group of people, mostly younger, are going around claiming that birds are not real, but are actually drone replicas installed by the government to spy on Americans. Protesters have been seen over at the Twitter headquarters asking them to change their logo. And a little bit like Rashi's comment, at first glance, this seems like a conspiracy-fueled crackpot protest that is completely disinterested with reality. However, upon closer examination, you'll find that its founder is quoted as saying, it's a way to combat troubles in the world that you don't really have other ways of combating. And he continues, my favorite way to describe the organization is fighting lunacy with lunacy. The Bird Brigade, as protesters lovingly call themselves, can be found offering counter protest at major political anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQ rallies. Their goal is to de-escalate protests and provide a home for people that want to put a mirror in front of protesters rallying around misinformation. And I think our country needs more of this. Protests that highlight silliness, whimsy, and the ridiculous can be a form of bravery. They can be an intelligent and creative response to victim-blaming, a critique to harmful and cruel policies that illogically discriminate against the other. But most importantly, they make space for those who just want to live their lives and then go home. Thank you.